Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 296 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus's wife. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 2003, author Dan Brown issued his bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. Though it was a novel, a work of fiction, it claimed to be based on fact, and the novel's characters uncovered a plot to keep secret the fact that Jesus Christ had been married to Mary Magdalene. But none of the early Christian documents they cited actually said that. Then, in 2012, a Harvard professor published a fragment of a lost work that did have Jesus speaking of his wife in the context of a woman named Mary. She called this fragment the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, and it caused a huge media sensation. What is the Gospel of Jesus' Wife? What does it say? And is it an authentic early Christian document? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, let's start by talking about the Harvard professor who introduced the gospel of Jesus's wife to the world. Who is she? Well, her name is Karen Lee King, and she was born in 1954 in Montana. Uh, So she's 69 today, and she was 58 when she published the gospel of Jesus's wife back in 2012. She holds the Hollis Professor of Divinity Chair at Harvard University, which is the oldest endowed chair in the United States and which has been in existence since 1721. She is regarded as a feminist scholar, as you can tell by the titles of some of the books she's published. She also specializes in Gnosticism, which is a Christian heresy that flourished in the second and third centuries. Professor King's books include her 1988 book, Images of the Feminine in Gnosticism, her 1996 book, Revelation of the Unknown God, her 2003 book, What is Gnosticism, her 2003 other book, The Gospel of Mary of Magdala, Jesus and the First Woman Apostle, and her 2007 co-authored book, Reading Judas, The Gospel of Judas and the Shaping of Christianity. You just mentioned the Gospel of Mary, which is relevant to our story today. Many of our listeners may not have heard of that work, so what is it? It's a Gnostic gospel uh, that's thought to have been written in the second century. It takes the form of a dialogue but in which, after his resurrection, Jesus discusses secret teachings with a woman named Mary. It's quite possible that this Mary is meant to be Mary Magdalene, but that's not certain. So King's title for her book, The Gospel of Mary of Magdala, goes beyond the evidence that is in the text itself which means that she's comfortable putting her own interpretation into the title of her book rather than using the more neutral title, The Gospel of Mary, that's used by scholars in general. Also problematic is her description of Mary, of the Mary of the Gospel, as the first woman apostle, because the text that she's interpreting for us does not describe Mary as an apostle. In fact, the word apostle does not appear in the text of the Gospel of Mary at all. So King is again forcing an interpretation on the reader in the subtitle of her book in this case, which is 
rather sensationalistic and iconoclastic and not exactly scholarly. Is there anything else we should know about Karen King? As a grad student, she became associated with the scholar Robert W. Funk, and despite the fact that she was only a grad student at the time, she became part of Funk's most famous project, which was known as the Jesus Seminar, in which scholars voted using colored beads to indicate whether they thought sayings of Jesus in the four canonical Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas were actually said by Jesus. A red bead meant that the saying was probably authentic. A pink bead meant it was possibly authentic. A gray bead meant it was probably not authentic. And a black bead meant it was definitely not authentic. The voting sessions that the Jesus Seminar conducted were big news back in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. And the members of the seminar were a very skeptical group of the words of the Lord's Prayer, the only words that they deemed authentic were the opening two words, Our Father. And they voted all of Jesus' sayings in the Gospel of John as being not authentic. By contrast, they voted multiple sayings from the non-canonical Gospel of Thomas as authentic. So you had a non-canonical Gospel with more authentic sayings of Jesus than one of the canonical four. Not all of our listeners will be familiar with the Gospel of Thomas. What is it? It's a collection of 114 sayings attributed to Jesus, and some of these have parallels in the canonical Gospels. For example, one of the sayings in Thomas is a version of the parable of the sower, which is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that's one reason why the Jesus Seminar scholars would vote some of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas as being authentic, because they're versions of things that are paralleled in the canonical Gospels that the Jesus Seminar scholars also thought to be authentic. You'll sometimes hear the Gospel of Thomas described as a Gnostic gospel, but that isn't certain. It doesn't contain full-blown Gnostic doctrines, though it does contain sayings that could be read in a Gnostic way and that can have a, can be said to have a Gnosticizing tendency. But when was the Gospel of Thomas written? Well, there's a dispute about that. Uh, a copy of it was discovered at a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945, and when scholars first got a look at it and saw it was apparently quoting the canonical Gospels, they said, okay, this is just another second century apocryphal Gospel. The quotations from the canonical ones seem to demand a later date for the Gospel of Thomas. But in more recent years, some liberal scholars have tried to argue that the Gospel of Thomas is early and was written in the first century, possibly even earlier than the canonical Gospels. The idea is that Thomas may not be based on the canonical four. Instead, it's based on oral traditions about Jesus's sayings. But this is problematic. For more information about that, I'll refer you to the work of the scholar Mark Goodacre, who wrote a whole book about Thomas's dependency on the canonical Gospels. It's called Thomas and the Gospels, the case for Thomas's familiarity with the synoptics. We'll have a link. Uh, to the book so that you can get it and read it for yourself. Personally, I agree with Mark Goodacre that the Gospel of Thomas is based on the canonical ones, and even some liberal scholars like Elaine Pagels think that the Gospel of Thomas was written as a response to the Gospel of John. One of the things New Testament scholars talk about is a hypothetical document called Q, 
that was used in writing Matthew in Luke's Gospels. There are about 235 verses that Matthew and Luke have in common, and they're mostly sayings. So it's been proposed that both Matthew and Luke use this Q document to get these sayings. If the Gospel of Thomas is just a collection of sayings attributed to Jesus, could it have been a candidate for Q? No. One reason is that Thomas does not include all of the sayings that are thought to have been part of Q. Also, it contains a lot of sayings that aren't in Matthew and Luke, and that's a problem for the Q theory because it's believed by supporters of Q that basically everything in Q ended up in Matthew and Luke. That's why Q didn't survive as an independent work, because basically all of it was included in Matthew and Luke, so there was no need to keep copying Q as a separate document. Furthermore, if it existed, uh, Q wasn't entirely a sayings document because it contained some narrative passages, and those passages aren't in Thomas. I also should point out that Q is a purely hypothetical document, and its existence is not guaranteed. There was a period in the 20th century when the Q hypothesis was heavily favored by New Testament scholarship, but that view has weakened somewhat, and additional views are now being explored. In fact, Mark Goodacre has written some books critiquing the idea that Q even existed, and he personally favors a view known as the Farrar hypothesis, which says that Mark wrote first, then Matthew added the 235 verses from his own sources, and then Luke borrowed those verses from Matthew. I personally favor a similar view, which is known as the Vilke hypothesis, which says that Mark wrote first, then Luke expanded Mark, and then Matthew took the 235 verses from Luke. Both the Farrar hypothesis and the Vilke hypothesis completely do away with the need for Q. They are simpler, and they don't require us to postulate a hypothetical document. But the discovery of Q was regarded as giving some, the discovery of Thomas was regarded as giving some support to the idea of Q, because at least it shows that some early Christians were writing collections of sayings attributed to Jesus. But if Thomas dates to the second century, it doesn't show that Christians were writing Jesus' sayings collections in the first century. And I would argue that it's more likely they would start publishing sayings collections later after the all-important story of Jesus had already been told in the canonical Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas and Q will come back into our discussion later, but now let's turn to the Gospel of Jesus's wife. What is it? I mean, physically, what is it? It's a small piece of papyrus uh, around the size of a credit card or business card, so it's very small. It appears uh, to be a fragment of a larger work that has now been lost, and the writing on it is in Coptic. Coptic is the language spoken by Egyptian Christians, who we talked about in episode 283 on Our Lady of Zaytun. It's a descendant of the original ancient Egyptian language that we see written in hieroglyphs, but it also has a lot of Greek loan words. Apparently, about 40% of its vocabulary is from Greek. The Greek loanwords uh, became apparent to me a number of years ago when I bought a Coptic dictionary, and I immediately noticed that the Coptic word for governor, hegemon, was the same as the Greek word for governor. So Coptic is based on ancient Egyptian, but it's not exactly the same. When it comes uh, to what's on the fragment itself, it contains only eight lines, all of which are incomplete. But here's what they say. Line 1 says, 
Not to me, my mother gave me life. Line 2 says, the disciples said to Jesus. Line 3, deny, Mary is not worthy of it. Line 4, Jesus said to them, my wife. Line 5, she is able to be my disciple. Line 6, let wicked people swell up. Line 7, as for me, I am with her in order to. Line 8, an image. So let's go through that line by line. In line one, there's some kind of dispute underway with someone, presumably Jesus, saying, not to me. Then this person says, my mother gave me life, presumably a reference to the Virgin Mary. Line two just says, the disciples said to Jesus, which tells us a conversation between Jesus and the disciples is taking place. Line three begins with the word deny, which continues the idea of a dispute being underway. Then it says Mary is not worthy of it. Unfortunately, it doesn't say which Mary is being discussed, and given the previous reference to Jesus' mother, the idea could be that the Virgin Mar that it's the Virgin Mary is a real possibility, and that should not be discounted. However, Karen King understood it as a likely reference to Mary Magdalene, which is not impossible, but also not certain. Whoever the Mary is, someone, perhaps the disciples, thinks that she's not worthy of something, and that may explain why the line begins with the word deny. The idea may be that Mary should deny, being whatever she's not worthy of. Line four is the blockbuster line that made the fragment famous. This line reads, Jesus said to them, my wife. This is also ambiguous. Throughout the New Testament, from Galatians, which is one of the first books to be written, to Revelation, which is likely to be the last book written, the church is portrayed as the New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, and the wife of the Lamb. So, based on the New Testament, we'd expect Jesus to be referring to the church as his wife. However, based on the reference to Mary in the previous line, King and others took my wife as a reference to a living human wife that Jesus had in the view of whoever wrote this text. In that case, this would not be a reference to the Virgin Mary since she was his mother. Line 5 says she is able to be my disciple, and this would also presumably be referring to a living human woman and being a disciple of Jesus might be what the dispute is about. Is Mary worthy of being a disciple or not? Line 6 says, let wicked people swell up. In context, the wicked people would presumably be those who take a different view than Jesus is taking on the topic under discussion. And by saying they can swell up, that might mean they can just be angry and swell up with anger, or it might mean something else, like maybe they'll swell up physically due to a curse on them. Line 7 says, as for me, I am with her in order to, which could mean a number of things, but one of them is that Jesus will be with Mary as his disciple. Finally, line 8 simply has two words that say an image, which might have something to do with the image of God, but it's very uncertain. So that's a sketch of what the fragment says and some of the things it might mean, but it does refer to Jesus speaking of someone as my wife, whether that's his church or Mary. Uh, and it was the latter idea, 
that it was Mary that caused the story about the fragment to become a media sensation. Is the fragment historical evidence that Jesus actually had a wife? No, and to her credit, Karen King was quick to point that out. Here, she's appearing on GBH News in Boston. Well, it reads like something out of a Dan Brown thriller. A Harvard professor is contacted by an anonymous collector with a tantalizing artifact, a small scrap of papyrus covered with an ancient text, making the first known reference to the wife of Jesus. The notion that Jesus might have been married sparked controversy in the Christian world. And I'm joined now by the Harvard scholar at the center of it. Karen King is a professor of early Christian history at the Harvard Divinity School. And welcome. Thank you. So oh, I guess you just yeah, interject that yeah. you're not saying he was. You're not saying, oh, this is proof. You're just saying this is a reference. I am saying this is not evidence that Jesus yeah. was married. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and that may be, you know, the story of my email. You know, people who like this and people who don't like it generally think that's the claim. But it's not. Um, so this is not in any case evidence. So King acknowledges that not only is this not proof, that Jesus was married. She says it's not even evidence that Jesus was married because, on her view, this was a late second century document. And so, if authentic, it could potentially show us what some early Christians believed about Jesus, maybe Gnostics, but it's too late to contain authentic historical traditions of Jesus's life in King's view, so it doesn't count as evidence. How did she come into possession of the fragment? She had been contacted by an anonymous collector of antiquities who had several Coptic fragments in his possession. The collector wanted her opinion of them, and King said that she had promised not to release the collector's identity so that he wouldn't be bothered by the press and things like that. How did the fragment first come to the public's attention? In Rome, there's a university known as the Augustinian Patristic Institute, also known as the Augustinianum. And in September of 2012, the Augustinianum was hosting a conference of scholars of Coptic literature from around the world. And on Tuesday, December, uh, September 18th, Karen King gave a presentation to the Coptic scholars about the piece of papyrus that had come into her possession. Based on the statement in line four, she had decided to call it the Gospel of Jesus's Wife. Unfortunately, she said, her laptop had crashed, and she could not show the scholars pictures of the fragment, but she described its contents and her interpretation of them. She talked for about half an hour, and then she took questions from the scholars in attendance. What was the reaction of the scholars who were there? They were rather cool towards her announcement, and they started asking uncomfortable questions. One of them uh, asked about the phrase that was translated, my wife. In Coptic, like a lot of ancient languages, the most common word for wife is the same as the word for woman. Your wife is your woman. Uh, we, just like in these languages, your husband is your man. Uh, we even use that, those expressions sometimes in English, although it isn't considered the most refined way of saying it. In Coptic, the word for woman is sahime, and the word that specifically means wife is hime. So, Sahime and hime. When you stick a ta on the front of these, they mean my woman or my wife. So ta sahime means my woman or my wife. And tahime means my wife specifically, not my woman, but specifically my wife. 
But the thing is, early Coptic writers used ta sahime every time they wanted to say my wife. This fragment is the only place that we've ever seen tahime used, so that's suspicious. The scholars who were present uh, pushed back on the idea that this was part of a gospel. It's just a tiny fragment, and it could have come from any kind of document. It may not have been a gospel at all. In his book Veritas, reporter Ariel Sabar reports, Madeline Scapello, a Sorbonne-educated expert in Gnosticism who served as the session's moderator, was the first of several scholars to suggest that the papyrus could just as well be part of a well-known tradition of Coptic homilies about the Virgin Mary. To lend biblical license to the Coptic Orthodox Church's many feasts, anonymous monks in the 5th to 7th centuries wrote dialogues in the voices of one or another of the apostles. Their aim was to fill the Bible's blanks like the death of Jesus' mother, an event known as Dormition, that the Gospels themselves don't record. A number of these homilies conflate the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene, describing the former as a Magdala-born woman who was the first witness to Jesus' resurrection. At least one such homily, another scholar noted, has Jesus kissing his mother on the mouth. So maybe this wasn't a gospel at all, but something else. They also pointed out that the sentence containing my wife broke off before identifying the wife, and so it could refer to anything, including the church, given how prominent the theme of the church as Jesus' wife is in early Christian literature. Incidentally, that's a possibility that Karen King didn't mention once, not even in a footnote, in a paper she published in the Harvard Theological Review which is highly suspicious, as a scholar should point out things like that in an academic treatment of the subject. And then the German scholar Wolf-Peter Funk noticed something very important. Ariel Sabar reports, As he stood up now in the back of the classroom, Funk, whose bandaged cranium seemed the outward manifestation of his reputation for surliness, said, I'm dissatisfied. How could scholars be expected to comment on a major new papyrus without seeing it? You haven't shown us a picture, he said, his voice rising. Why aren't you? The reason you're not being shown a picture, King interjected, is that my computer died on the plane on the way here. A commotion erupted. Funk looked furious. This was a major announcement, and all King had for her audience was a word processor printout with her transcription and translation. For scholars of Coptic, a manuscript's physical appearance was paramount. The handwriting style, the look of a papyrus, the ink application, all of it was critical to assessing a manuscript's place in history and its authenticity. King's colleague, Anne-Marie Leyendyke, who was in the room, had high-quality images of the papyrus on her own laptop at the meeting. Harvard University had multiple images on its servers. Three days had passed since King said her computer had crashed. Why she neither copied the photos from her colleague, nor had her employer emailed them to the conference, was a mystery. So the crash of King's laptop and her subsequent failure to get easily obtainable replacement pictures to show the scholars was suspicious, given the importance of the pictures for the scholars in attendance. Because King called the papyrus a gospel, Funk wanted to compare the handwriting with the elegant calligraphy on other gospel papyri. Is this a book script, he asked? 
King didn't give a direct reply, but said she would be interested in everyone's views on the handwriting once they had a chance to see it. Yeah, I can't wait to hear... I just got on the web, a scholar broke in excitedly. It's on the web, another cried, finding the images either on Harvard's website or in one of the just-posted news stories. A hubbub ensued as scholars jockeyed for position behind colleagues who had brought iPads or laptops. The clamor reached a high enough pitch that the moderator banged a book against the table, like a judge gaveling a court to order. Some silence, please, she shouted. From what Funk could see on her neighbor's laptop, the fragment's ugly, ill-proportioned hand was anything but book script. The question of genre, he said, wearing an anguished look. Nothing, nothing, nothing proves that this is part of a real literary gospel. Not with anything this size, King conceded. That's right, that's right. So the poor penmanship on the fragment was inconsistent with the way that early Coptic scribes wrote Gospels, casting doubt on whether this was a Gospel, which King herself admitted was the case. And the fact that she decided to bill it as a Gospel suggested she was deliberately sensationalizing the find. The mysterious crash of her laptop and her failure to obtain replacement images similarly suggested that she may have been trying to keep the scholars from seeing the images at the conference. But the conference was only the beginning. It was at this point that the story of the Gospel of Jesus' wife blew up and became a worldwide media sensation. Why would that be? If King announced its discovery at a scholarly conference and the scholars were significantly skeptical and disappointed, why did it make such a big splash in the media at the time? Because Karen King had made other plans for it to blow up in the media. Ariel Sabar explains, Karen King had staged a media coup with just a little help and only in the final stretch from Harvard University's publicists. Before taking the fragment public, she had hooked the Smithsonian Channel on a documentary and invited journalists for the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and Smithsonian Magazine to Harvard for advanced interviews. She ensured that the news media and the public would see photos of the discovery before the scholars at her photo-free presentation in Rome. She helped set up a Gospel of Jesus' Wife website for Harvard University, filmed a YouTube news release, and took to the phones after her talk at the Augustinianum for a conference call with reporters. The next day, King kept the momentum going with an unscheduled news conference with a gaggle of international press. So she'd pre-planned a major media push with pre-written stories by major newspapers just waiting to be released as soon as the scholarly conference in Rome happened. What was the reaction of the public? Well, it varied. Um, and since confirmation bias is so strong among humans, opinion was split based on what people already believed. Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which also proposed that Jesus was married, had been released in 2003 and the Tom Hanks movie version of The Da Vinci Code was released in 2006, and it's really terrible, by the way. So the idea was out there in popular culture, and people who had bought into The Da Vinci Code thesis embraced the gospel of Jesus' wife as welcome confirmation of what they already believed. Meanwhile, those who were skeptical of or rejected The Da Vinci Code were similarly skeptical of the gospel of Jesus' wife. People on both sides were passionate about the subject. And, by the way, The Da Vinci Code is a work of fiction that's based on an earlier book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, 
and we discussed Holy Blood, Holy Grail back in episode 77. So people can go to mysterious.fm slash 77 for more information about that. And while people largely split over the gospel of Jesus' wife based on their thoughts on the Da Vinci Code, there were some surprises in how people reacted. Ariel Sabar reports that on Comedy Central's program The Daily Show, comedian John Stewart had an insightful observation. Stewart marveled at how anything could be read into a sentence that breaks off after the words, my wife. That's your proof, he said incredulously. Well, let me see if I can fill that sentence out for you. Jesus said, my wife, if I ever find one, we will really like to have Thai food. Or how about this? My wife? Question mark? No, I'm not married. Stewart is a comedian who is not particularly friendly to Orthodox Christianity, but he's correct. You really could, you really have to be cautious about the, what you infer from an incomplete sentence. While there's a significant likelihood that if this fragment is authentic, that it may have referred to Jesus having a wife, we really don't know that, and it might not be the case. So there's another reason why this isn't any kind of proof that Jesus had a wife. How did the scholarly community in general react once the story had broken in the press? There were some scholars who were supportive of the fragment's authenticity in varying degrees, but many scholars raised doubts about it. Ariel Sabar reports, when reporters showed up at the Augustinianum on September 19, they didn't go home after interviewing King. They sought out other scholars, many of whom voiced reservations about King's reading of the text, her belief in its authenticity, or both. Within 24 hours, the news stories took a dark turn. Headlines like, A faded piece of papyrus refers to Jesus' wife, and Was Jesus married? gave way to Doubts over Harvard claim of Jesus' wife papyrus, and is it a fraud? The Times, The Globe, and The Smithsonian, the publications to which King granted interviews before the announcement, wasted little time publishing follow-up pieces with quotations from skeptics. The Smithsonian Channel, meanwhile, announced an indefinite postponement of its documentary amid the questions about authenticity. Also stepping back was Anne-Marie Leyendyke. She was scheduled to give a paper on the fragment at the Society of Biblical Literature's annual conference in Chicago that November, but canceled after the announcement in Rome. A more public rebuke came from the historian Elaine Pagels, the most celebrated figure in Gnostic studies. She and King were friends. They had co-written a best-selling book on the Gospel of Judas just a few years before. But when I called Pagels for my Smithsonian article in late September 2012, she pointedly questioned King's decision to call the wife papyrus a gospel. The word gospel, she told me, implies a text professing to chronicle real events in Jesus' life. The wife papyrus could just as easily be a dialogue text in which followers describe often symbolic visions from Jesus. Or it could belong to a genre of ancient writing that some specialists liken to fan fiction. When you call it, the gospel of Jesus's wife, I just think, what are you talking about, Pagel said. At least 99% of this text is missing, she went on. Calling it a gospel, I'm sorry, I don't understand that except to make it sound more, well, what's the word? Important. It's much more sensational than what we can infer. In Pagel's view, King had read things into it that simply weren't there. I don't think this piece says anything about Mary Magdalene. 
She wasn't even sure Jesus was the speaker. All told, she said dryly, I guess my enthusiasm is not as great as hers. So things were not going the way that King had hoped, and worse yet, the Harvard Theological Review decided to hold off on publishing her article on the fragment until additional scientific testing on it had been done. In part, this was because the editors weren't just reading the headlines from Rome, they were receiving alarmed emails from scholars. A Brown University Egyptologist named Leo Dupuit, who didn't attend the Coptic conference but saw images of the papyrus online, wrote the editors of a colossal double blunder in the papyrus's grammar. Features of the error, he thought, hinted at a present-day European grappling with ancient Coptic. The perpetrator was less likely a very incompetent ancient scribe, Dupuit emailed, than a modern author who might have benefited from one more semester of Coptic. The debate about the authenticity of the fragment went back and forth for several years. In the course of time, King was able to announce the findings of tests that had been done on the fragment that confirmed that the papyrus it was written on was ancient, and the ink used in writing it didn't betray any signs of being modern, so she used these to support the idea that the fragment was authentic. But the controversy was far from over. And before we get to our theories and faith and reason perspectives, we'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Matthew G., Jose S., John Eric C., James P., and Vincent H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by DeliverContacts.com, offering top brand contact lenses at always low prices with free delivery. Visit DeliverContacts.com and by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at GradyGroupInc.com. Jimmy, before we get to the faith and reason perspectives, what theories are there about the gospel of Jesus's wife? Well, from the faith perspective, we need to ask, if Jesus had a wife, how would that affect the Christian faith and its practice? From the reason perspective, if the fragment is authentic, what historical value would it have? Would it prove that Jesus was married? And most importantly, is it authentic? So what can we say about the gospel of Jesus's wife from the faith perspective? Would it really impact the Christian faith if it turned out that Jesus was married to a literal human woman? A few years ago, I released an ebook with the title, Was Jesus Married? In it, I didn't talk about Karen King's argument, but I did respond to arguments made in the Da Vinci Code, and we'll have a link to the ebook so that you can read it for yourself. But on the question of whether it would make a difference from the faith perspective if Jesus had been married, here is what I had to say. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, and correspondingly, he's not constrained by anything. He has absolute freedom, and he could have chosen to have his son not only be born as a man, but also take a wife, as most men do. There is no sin in marriage. Sex is not dirty. It's a part of God's design for the human race. When used the way God meant it, sex is a glorious and holy expression of love between a husband and a wife. 
And so, if God chose, it could have been a glorious and holy part of his son's incarnation as a man. So, no, it would not destroy any article of faith if it turned out that Jesus had a human wife, in addition to his mystical bride, the church. In my ebook, I survey the evidence and conclude that this was not the case. The arguments that Jesus was married don't work. There were men in the first in first century Judaism who did not marry for religious reasons, and the New Testament strongly indicates that Jesus was one of these men, which is, you know, kind of a good thing because if your mission in life is to offer your life on a cross for the sins of mankind, rise from the dead, and then ascend into heaven, it's kind of a good thing not to have a wife and children that you're going to abandon. Right. Well, would having a Mary Jesus say anything about the Catholic practice of having a celibate priesthood? There's a good bit of confusion about this practice, so we should clear it up. Celibacy for priests is not a doctrine. It is not a teaching of the Catholic Church that priests need to remain celibate, which just means unmarried. Instead, it is a practice that is used in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. It allows priests to live the way Jesus did in an unmarried state, so it conforms them to what he did. It also conforms them to the final state of mankind because Jesus told us that we will not be married in the resurrection. And it frees the priests up for greater ministry to the people they spiritually care for. But this is a Latin rite thing. Other rites of the church have married priests. In fact, even the Latin rite has some married priests, such as converts from Anglicanism or other Protestant groups, that were married and then became ordained as Latin rite priests. You know, there were former Anglican or Lutheran ministers or something. They become Catholic and then they get married. They get ordained as Catholic priests. Over the years, Catholic Answers has had multiple chaplains from more than one rite, and two of our chaplains have been married men with children. One was Father Ray Ryland, who was a converted Anglican minister with his family, and his son Tim Ryland was the editor of Catholic Answers magazine until recently. The other was Father Sam Keyes, another former Anglican minister with a family, who was a member of the Anglican Ordinariate that Pope Benedict XVI set up a few years ago. So married Catholic priests, even in the Latin rite of the Church, are a very real thing. The discipline of celibacy is only that. It's a discipline. It's not a doctrine. And if the church ever decided that it would be better to relax the discipline, that would have no effect on any doctrines of the faith. Having said that, if it were known that Jesus was married, it would remove one of the reasons for priests to be celibate, to you know live the way that Jesus did. And so it would weaken the rationale for clerical celibacy, but that's not what the evidence says about Jesus, and even if it were, so what? Some proposed that the gospel of Jesus' wife would say something about the role of women in the church. In his book, Ariel Sabar reports on one woman who said early on that, as a result of the fragment, now I talk with my daughter, it's going to be okay for her to be a woman. What do you make of this? Well, I can't pass judgments on someone else's subjective experience, but frankly, I see no basis for this claim. And when has it ever not been okay for a person to be a woman? Uh, there have been fallen human beings who were prejudiced against women, but that's not God's attitude and never has been. As St. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, 
there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I don't see why a woman needs extra validation by having one member of her sex be married to Jesus. Jesus loved and died for all the women of the world. That testifies to their value in God's eyes that the Son of God was willing to die for them, and that's the validation one needs. Then let's turn to the reason perspective. What can we say about the gospel of Jesus' wife from the reason perspective? Well, thus far, we've commented on how the scholarly community began to identify problems with the gospel of Jesus' wife, but there's another side to the story that wasn't initially accessible to the scholarly community. It has to do with the provenance of the fragment, meaning the history of where it came from and who had it along the way. And I should point out, because some people say providence when they mean provenance, they're two different things. Providence means what you provide for. Provenance means where something came from. You'll recall that an anonymous collector uh, provided it to Professor King, and she completely failed to do significant checking on its provenance. In fact, she told Ariel Sabar, I don't see the point of a conversation, King told me. I haven't engaged the provenance questions at all. So she really wasn't interested in researching the origin of the fragment and largely just took the collector's word for where it, for where it came from. What did the collector tell her? He said that he acquired it in a set of six Coptic fragments from a German man named Hans Ulrich Laukamp in 1999. This set included uh, the Gospel of Jesus' Wife fragment, and another fragment, which was part of a Coptic edition of the Gospel of John. It will become important later in our story, so remember it. As evidence to confirm his account of the acquisition, the owner sent Professor King a photocopy of the sales contract with Laukamp, and he also gave her a scan of a letter from 1982 that Laukamp had received from Peter Monroe, an Egyptologist at the Free University of Berlin. In the letter, Monroe told Laukamp that he thought one of the fragments was from the Gospel of John. The owner also sent Professor King a scan of an unsigned handwritten note that had no date on it. This anonymous note said that another fragment contains a reference to Jesus having a wife, so that would be the Gospel of Jesus' wife fragment. But that's all he gave her? A photocopy, scans, an anonymous note with no date on it? Not original documents that can be checked out by document examiners to see if these documents were authentic? Wasn't that suspicious? It was extremely suspicious. And since King wasn't interested in looking into the provenance of the document any further, various journalists took up the challenge and started doing research. And they started making headway in figuring things out. One of them was Smithsonian's Ariel Sabar, and it was he who finally put all the pieces together. How did he go about it? What did he do to find out what he needed to know? He describes the details of the process in his book Veritas, and we won't go through all of the techniques he used to keep today's episode from going too long, but you can read the book to get all the details, and it's a really riveting read. One of the things he did was look up Hans Ulrich Laukamp and Peter Monroe, who were mentioned in the documents that the owner had turned over to King. He discovered that both of them were dead. 
Laukamp died in 2002, and Monroe died in 2009. So very conveniently, neither of them could be interviewed to see if they would confirm the collector's story. In 1999, when the collector allegedly acquired the fragment, Laukamp was living in Florida in the United States. However, that year, Laukamp's wife came down with cancer and went back to Germany. Laukamp went with her, and she died there in December 1999. But Laukamp did not fit the profile of an antiquities collector. Sabar discovered that Laukamp was an automotive tool manufacturer, and he had never even graduated from high school. So he didn't really sound like the kind of intellectual who would be interested in collecting ancient Coptic manuscripts. But he did own an auto parts company that was successful for a time. Sabar also discovered that four days after his wife died, Laukamp's auto parts company opened an American branch in Florida. And the man in charge of the American branch was another German national named Walter Fritz. He lived in Northport, Florida, and Sabar thought that he might be the anonymous collector, in part because he had also studied at Berlin's Free University, and he had studied Egyptology. In fact, he'd once published a journal article about the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten. Incidentally, we told the story of Akhenaten, Egypt, Egypt's heretic pharaoh, back in episode 28, so you can go to mysterious.fm slash 28 and hear all about him and how he turned ancient Egypt upside down. Once Sabar guessed that Walter Fritz was the owner, what did he do? He went to Florida, called Fritz, and asked to meet him. But Fritz got defensive, declined, declined the interview request, and hastily hung up. He also said that he'd never studied Egyptology, that he hadn't written the journal article about Akhenaten, that he was just a consultant for, not in charge of, the auto parts company's American branch, and that he didn't remember how he'd met Laukamp. And, as Sabar reports in a 2016 article for The Atlantic magazine, Fritz also had comments about the Jesus Wife fragment. He then alluded somewhat cryptically to the question of the papyrus's authenticity. There will always be people who say yes and people who say no, he told me. Everybody is up in arms and has an opinion. I asked him what his opinion was. I don't want to comment. Are you the owner, I asked? No, he said. Who said that? No one, I answered, but since he was one of Laukamp's few American acquaintances, I wanted to be sure. He wasn't the owner, Fritz insisted. He had no idea who was. Fritz thus denied being the owner, but that didn't satisfy Sabar, so he contacted an Egyptologist at the Free University and sent him a photo of Fritz. The man emailed him back and said that the man in the photograph did look like Walter Fritz, suggesting that he had lied in the phone call. Sabar also made other discoveries about Fritz using public records. He found out that Fritz ran a business called Nefer Art. Nefer is the ancient Egyptian word for beautiful, like in the name of Akhenaten's wife, Nefertiti, whose name can be translated, the beautiful woman has come. And this confirms Fritz's Egyptological connection. One of the things Sabar found out about Fritz was really disturbing. What was that? 
that on August 26, 2012, almost a month before King had announced the fragment at the conference in Rome, Fritz had registered a domain name, gospelofjesuswife.com, so he obviously had advanced knowledge. And even more disturbing, Fritz had operated a series of specialty websites for uh, a certain kind of swinger, and that he and his wife featured in videos on these websites. But we won't be going into details about that because it's not family-friendly. Some of the websites mixed the sacred and the profane, and Fritz's wife believed that she was receiving divine revelations from angels. She even self-published a book of alleged revelations from God and the Archangel Michael that she had received by automatic writing. So between the Jesus Wife Papyrus, the Swingers websites, and the Heavenly Revelations, Fritz and his wife were a really wild couple, and they were playing with the same elements that were in the Da Vinci Code, with religion, sex, Jesus being married, and ancient Gnostic Gospels. Eventually, Sabar called Fritz again and confronted him over the phone. In his Atlantic article, he writes, Nearly four months had passed since I first spoken with Walter Fritz. The time had come to call him again. When he answered on a Monday morning in March, I laid out what I discovered. His training in Egyptology, his ties to the Free University, the fact that he'd registered gospelofjesuswife.com weeks before King's announcement. So what is it you want to know, he asked. The truth about the papyrus, I said. All the evidence pointed to him as the owner. Maybe I know the person who owns it, he said. He claimed the papyrus' owner was a friend whose identity he was not at liberty to disclose. When I asked him whether he'd had any contact with Karen King, he said he had never met her, but had talked with her briefly, just to clarify something. Sabar then confronted him with the idea that he might have forged the document. Let's be the devil's advocate and say either Mr. Laukamp or I conspired to forge a papyrus to make a statement he said when we spoke again later that week. Well, there is still no scientific evidence at this point that we did it. But could he have pulled off a near-perfect forgery if he'd wanted to? Well, to a certain degree, probably, he said. But to a degree that it is absolutely undetectable to the newest scientific methods, I don't know. I didn't understand these hedges, so I asked point-blank whether he had forged the gospel of Jesus' wife. His response was unequivocal. No. He had even more scorn for critics of the Jesus' Wife papyrus, deriding them as county-level scholars from the University of Eastern PP land, who think their nitpicking of Coptic phrases can compete with scientific tests at places like Columbia University and MIT that have yielded no physical proof of forgery. Fritz's expression, the University of Eastern PP land, is an exact quotation. I'm not censoring what he said, and that comment has struck various people as highly amusing. And soon after this phone call, Sabar received an email from Fritz that stated, Dear Mr. Sabar, I, Walter Fritz, herewith certify that I am the sole owner of a papyrus fragment which was named Gospel of Jesus' Wife. I warrant that neither I nor any third parties have forged, altered, or manipulated the fragment and or its inscription in any way since it was acquired by me. 
The previous owner gave no indications that the fragment was tampered with either. So after having Sabar catch him in multiple lies, he changed his mind and decided to acknowledge that he was, in fact, the anonymous owner of the fragment, whose name Karen King had refused to release. But he still denied that it was a forgery and insisted it was authentic. Then Fritz told Sabar more about how he'd acquired the fragments. He said that he bought them from Laukamp in November, on November 12, 1999, and that the purchase had taken place at Laukamp's home in Florida. But that was not believable, because between October and December 1999, Laukamp was with his dying wife in Germany. So it looked like just another lie. Having caught Fritz in so many lies, and suspecting that he or someone he knew forged the Gospel of Jesus' wife fragment, and possibly the Gospel of John fragment, did Sabar start looking into whether he was tied to any other forgeries? He did. He got Fritz to send him a scan of the 1982 letter from Peter Monroe about the Gospel of John fragment, and... When I forwarded it to a close colleague of Monroe's, he wrote back that the signature and stationery looked 100% authentic. But later, I noticed two errors in the street address for Laukamp's Berlin apartment. Not only are the building number and postal code incorrect, but no such address existed. The letter, it seemed, warranted a closer look. On the advice of a forensic document examiner, I sought as many of Monroe's letters from the early 1980s through the mid-1990s as I could. Soon, scans were arriving by email from a former doctoral student a Dutch Egyptologist who has custody of Monroe's archives, a free university professor, and the same Monroe colleague who initially thought the letter looked genuine, a position he quickly backed away from after seeing other Monroe letters. The problems were endemic. A word that should have been typed with a special German character, a so-called sharp S, which Monroe used in typewritten correspondence throughout the 80s and early 90s, was instead rendered with two ordinary S's a sign that the letter may have been composed on a non-German typewriter or after Germany's 1996 spelling reform, or both. In fact, all the available evidence suggests that the 1982 letter isn't from the 1980s. Its courier typeface does not appear in the other Monroe correspondence I gathered until the early 90s, Fritz's final years at the university. The same is true of the letterhead. The school's Egyptology Institute began using it only around April 1990. As a student of Monroe's, Fritz may well have received correspondence from the professor, a letter of recommendation, for example, or a note certifying that he'd completed a course. It would not be difficult, the forensic examiner told me, to take an authentic letter, lay a sheet of new typewritten text across its middle, and make a photocopy. This might explain why Munro's typewritten name at the bottom of the letter is parallel with the stationery's design elements, while the rest of the text sits slightly askew. It might also explain why no original exists. Furthermore, Sabar discovered that Fritz had applied for a job with the state of Florida, and in his application, he submitted a photocopy of a document saying that he had a master's degree in Egyptology from the Free University of Berlin. But university records confirm that Fritz never received a master's in Egyptology from the Free University, 
So this letter, this photocopy of a letter that he submitted was itself a provable forgery. And it's a crime to submit a false document like this to the government in Florida. So Fritz appears to be provably involved with forgery and the criminal use of forged documents. There's a lot more that we could go into about what Sabar uncovered about Fritz and how he exposed Fritz's lies. But we won't do that to keep this episode from running even longer. Listeners can read Sabar's book Veritas for the full story. However, is there anything else we should know about Sabar's interactions with Fritz? There is one thing that I'd point out. Uh, Before he published his article in The Atlantic, Sabar went down to Florida again to photograph Fritz uh, for the magazine and have a final interview with him. Then, as he explains in the article, After the waitress cleared our lunch plates, Fritz leaned across the table and told me to shut off my tape recorder. I obliged, but continued taking notes. He wanted to keep this next part between the two of us, but I didn't agree, and he went on anyway. He had a proposition. He had no talent for storytelling, he said, but he possessed the erudition to produce hundreds of pages of background material for a book, a thriller that he wanted me to write. Instead of doing my own research, which could take years, I should rely on his. I'd do all the legwork for you, and I wouldn't want anything in return, he said. The book's subject, he said, would be the Mary Magdalene story, the suppression of the female element in the church, and the primacy of the Gnostic Gospels, maybe accumulating to a thriller story in the present. It sounded an awful lot like the Da Vinci Code. The book, he assured me, would be a runaway bestseller, a million copies in the first month or so. Our collaboration, he said, could really make a big difference. But he insisted on the need for fabrication. You have to make a lot of stuff up, he said. You cannot just present facts. The truth is not absolute, he explained. The truth depends on perspectives, surroundings. I let him go on for a while, but I was stupefied. I was reporting a story about a possible forgery, and the man at his center was asking me to make a lot of stuff up for a new project in which he'd be my eager partner. It was a proposal so tone-deaf that either he was clueless, incorrigible, or up to something I couldn't quite yet discern. I reminded him that I was a journalist. I wrote fact, not fiction. Nor could I accept favors from the subject of a story. But I was curious. What role would the Walter Fritz character play in this hypothetical book, whose underlying ideas, after all, would be entirely his? He gave me a quizzical look. I wouldn't have a role in it, he said. He wanted, that is, to be the invisible hand. As I walked back to my car, I realized with something like a shudder that Fritz had hoped to lure me into a trap from which my reputation might never recover. I knew enough about his dealings with King and Laukamp to recognize all the signs, the request for secrecy, the strategic self-effacement, the use of other people for his own enigmatic ends. Fame and fortune would rain down on me, he'd promised. All I had to do was lower my guard and trust him with all the important details. So Fritz tried to inveigle Sabar into a scheme the same way he had suckered Karen King. What was King's reaction after Sabar's article came out in The Atlantic? He published a short follow-up piece on that, and in the second article he wrote, For four years, Karen L. King, a Harvard historian of Christianity, has defended the so-called Gospel of Jesus' Wife 
against scholars who argued it was a forgery. But Thursday, for the first time, King said the papyrus, which she introduced to the world in 2012, is a probable fake. She reached this conclusion, she said, after reading the Atlantic's investigation into the papyrus's origins, which appears in the magazine's July-August issue and was posted to its website Wednesday night. It tips the balance towards forgery, she said. When I called her in March while reporting my Atlantic story, she said she was not interested in commenting on or even hearing about my findings before publication. Thursday afternoon, however, she called me to say the story was fascinating and very helpful. I had no idea about this guy, obviously, she said. He lied to me. I asked why she hadn't undertaken an investigation of the papyrus's origins and the owner's background. Your article has helped me see that providence can be investigated, she said. King said she would need scientific proof or a confession to make a definitive finding of forgery. It's theoretically possible that the papyrus itself is authentic, she said, even if its providence story is bogus. But the preponderance of the evidence, she said, now presses in the direction of forgery. So Karen King finally came around and acknowledged that the so-called Gospel of Jesus' wife should be regarded as a forgery. How should we regard her then? Fritz had tried to trick Sabar into a collaboration, just like he previously tricked King. Was she just an innocent victim? I've seen interviews with Sabar in previous years where he gave Karen King the benefit of the doubt, but in his 2020 book, Veritas, he takes a much stronger line. Initially, she refused to be interviewed for Veritas, so she wouldn't defend herself or her reputation when he was writing about it. She also refused to help him when he was vetting the book and did not respond when he sent her a list of statements he was making about her that he wanted her to fact check, you know, so she could correct any mistakes he was about to make. Though she acknowledged in 2016 that the document was a fraud, she wanted nothing more to do with Sabar, and in Veritas, he paints a very unflattering picture of her that makes her look much more like an opportunistic ideologue than a fair objective scholar. We won't go into all the background of what he says, but here's a representative passage to give you a sample. In public, King presented herself as a just-the-facts historian. She spoke of wanting historical information, all evidence possible, an accurate view of history, the full data set. Her use of scientific-sounding words like data simultaneously cast her scholarship as even-handed and dispassionate, while tarring that of parochial institutions as hopelessly ideological. One criterion for good history, she said, is accounting for all the evidence and not marginalizing the parts one doesn't like or promoting unfairly the parts one does like. How then did King explain her failure to investigate provenance amid multiple warnings from colleagues? Why didn't she do a single scientific test before launching a publicity blitz for the papyrus? Why didn't she consult a senior Coptic papyrologist as Roger Bagnall suggested, after the peer reviewer questioned the fragment's handwriting. Why did she soft-pedal the implausible 8th century date, seek to sidetrack Dupuit's rebuttal, refuse to release provenance documents, and bar reporters from contacting other scientists? If this wasn't marginalizing the parts one doesn't like, what was? Authenticity, I grew to believe, was never central for King, because authenticity was a construct that relied on bare facts which she argued had no meaning outside storied worlds. 
What fired her intellect was the papyrus's text, its story, a narrative that amplified her longstanding views about women's wrongful exclusion from the church, a lullaby that filled a long-lamented lacuna. And what Sabar has to say about King is actually quite a bit worse than that. He covers other things that she did, including multiple instances of professional misconduct, in considerable detail. But we'll let you read Veritas for the full story. And what is King doing today? Her reputation with some people never fully recovered after the Gospel of Jesus' Wife debacle, and she began a phased retirement from Harvard University, though she's still working there and is on leave in the spring of 2024 semester. She also never published a book on the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. In fact, she hasn't published any new books since the incident. She has published some articles, so she's still out there doing her thing, though. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Gospel of Jesus' Wife? The Gospel of Jesus' Wife is a forgery, as multiple lines of evidence clearly indicate. The evidence suggests that it was either forged by Walter Fritz or by someone known to him. If the evidence uncovered by Ariel Sabar is accurate, it also reflects very poorly on Professor Karen King, who comes off as an opportunistic ideologue who is guilty of multiple instances of professional misconduct. But we can thank the community of scholars and journalists who, regardless of their religious beliefs or disbelief, exposed the fraud, thus limiting the damage it did and undoing some of what had already been done. And Jimmy, what further resources can we offer? We'll have a link to my ebook, Was Jesus Married? Also, Ariel Sabar's book, Veritas, A Harvard Professor, A Con Man, and the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. Uh, Mark Goodiker's author page, also Mark Goodiker's book, Thomas and the Gospels. Karen King's author page, Ariel Sabar's article, The Unbelievable Tale of Jesus' Wife. Ariel Sabar's article, Karen King Responds to the Unbelievable Tale of Jesus' Wife. A 2014 Atlantic article, The Curious Case of Jesus' Wife. Also, just basic information about the Gospel of Jesus' Wife and Karen King. Also, Mark Goodiker's coverage of the Gospel of Jesus' Wife on his blog. He's got a lot of very interesting stuff to say there. Also, uh, an episode of his NT Pod podcast, where Mark Goodiker talks about all this. A, an interview with Karen King from 2014 and a 2016 Boston Globe article. Very good. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about the gospel of Jesus's wife? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord com community at sqpn.com slash discord or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515 that's 619-738-4515 and i want to say a special word of thanks to oasis studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode they're available for hire so you can check out their work and just see what the video version of the podcast looks like by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, uh, please do engage with the video. That will tell YouTube that you found it engaging and that other people might find it engaging too. 
And so it will share it with more people and you can help the podcast grow. Um, to engage with it, you can like, comment, and especially subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video. These days, I tend to have multiple videos a week. And at the time of we're recording this, I'm almost to 50,000 subscribers on YouTube. So you can help us get there. Please do subscribe. I'm trying to grow my channel, and I'd really appreciate it. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going cryptid hunting. So we're going to be searching for a hidden or unknown animal. But this time, we're going to be looking at a cryptid that actually killed people. We'll be very discreet about what it did, but we'll be going back to the 1700s and looking at a cryptid that plagued the Gévaudan region of France. The creature was so fierce that it became known as the Beast of Gévaudan. And we'll be revealing to you what this beast very likely was. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 296. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs Matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com. And by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.